0: and welcome to Regeneratively Speaking, a podcast brought to you by the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm Emily Gregg.
1: And I'm Joshua Huntsberger. In each episode, we bring you interviews with guest researchers and our institute's faculty covering the latest cutting-edge research on regenerative medicine. Today we have Colonel John Holcomb, who is currently the a professor at University of Texas Medical School at Houston welcome
2: that's great to be here thanks
1: <laughs> so Colonel Holcomb you're recognized as a soldier a surgeon a scientist and entrepreneur which we just found out recently um, could you start off with how having this unique experience has provided perspective in improving casualty trauma care
2: yeah well that's a pretty broad question um, you know, I think that uh, what you've asked is a sum of experience. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I'll just kind of tell a little bit of a story if I can. Yes. So I had no money for medical school. My dad was in the army, so applying to the army for a scholarship was pretty easy. It felt pretty natural. Uh, and I they paid my way through medical school. I owed four years after finishing residency, surgery residency in El Paso, Texas. And my plan was to get out and go into private practice. And uh, up in a little town in northwest New Mexico, actually. And uh, and my life turned with some experiences in the Army. and ended up staying for 23 years. um, It was a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. At the end of 23 years, with multiple deployments out on the battlefield, it was time to move on. Mm -hmm. Uh, My family was tired, and and, um, it was just time to move. So I went uh, back to Houston, where I've been for the last 10 years. And uh, had the opportunity to help build a program in trauma and critical care, emergency general surgery and burns, and then also a big research group. I'm a firm believer that uh, we ought to try to drive our care of our patients with high quality data uh, as much as possible. There's so much tradition uh, in medicine, it's really pretty unbelievable when you start figuring out why do we do these things often it's because we were taught to do them by somebody else who was Mm -hmm. taught by somebody else and taught by somebody else Mm -hmm. and when you peel back that onion there's no reason there's no data it's just tradition Mm -hmm. Um, and so what we did is step back and said look let's understand why why we do the things we do and when it's tradition based uh, let's try to put some data next to that and so we and almost in a systematic, programmatic fashion, if you will, which is what I learned in the, from the Army research uh, world, was working in a programmatic fashion, uh, which is very different than the way the NIH runs things, where they're investigator-driven in response to RFPs, and you do a study or a grant, and it's all done. And in the military research world, uh, where I had the opportunity to work for about a decade, it said, uh, look, let's go work on hemorrhage control. And there's a program of hemorrhage control that uh, yields multiple grants and studies and efforts, all culminating in an improved hemorrhage control, whether that be tourniquets or hemostatic dressings or resuscitation. Took that concept into the academic world, well-funded uh, by, well by the DOD and the NIH and philanthropy and industry. One of our concepts was all money is green, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, and you apply that to better generating better data in the clinical world. We had a very receptive hospital, a very receptive university, and a large number of patients, and then developed collaborators around the country. And so we're able to change uh, a number of things on how we treat trauma patients, from tourniquets to dressings and resuscitation practices. It's pretty exciting. Um, Entrepreneurship uh, came into play as I kind of watched and participated in animal and human studies over the years in, in the ivory tower of the research lab or of even the Tertiary, quaternary care university hospital, which is not really real world. Uh, the only way to change uh, practice in the real world is to get industry involved. Uh, they need help from clinicians, and they also are the engine of selling stuff, not only in the United States but around the world. Uh, you know, in my field of, uh, of uh, medical practice and injury. Injury is the leading cause, one of the leading causes of death worldwide, far outweighs TB, malaria, and HIV, which we all hear about all the time. But you took those three diseases together, doesn't match the yearly toll that injury takes around the world. Um, so it's not only a U.S. problem, civilian, a military problem, but a worldwide problem, And uh, which is good to work on big problems, right? We work on big problems. Yeah. And industry will, um, there's nothing wrong with capitalism industry if they find a good thing and you pair good science with good business will help a lot of people and they'll make some money. Absolutely. All that's good. Um, yeah. So you roll all that up together as kind of a sum <laughs> of, you know, that that's just, you. we just covered about 35 years.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, let's go back to what you were talking about with your um, extent in the Army. So we know that as a part of your commitment, you spent some time in Somalia um as a general surgeon where you were a part of a surgical team that delivered the 48-hour nonstop care to soldiers um, that went on to inspire the book and film black hawk down so we'd be interested to see how that experience changed the way you um went on to treat battlefield injuries and maybe identify the new needs for trauma care
2: yeah it's a it's a great question so you know i gave a um i was a visiting professor up at the new medical school in austin last week and um at the dell medical school it's a great great place just a brand new medical school in austin texas part of the U- ut system and they had a research symposium and we were speaking to a bunch of young uh, medical students postdocs you know that kind of audience yeah. and uh, i was supposed to give this inspirational speech about why why should you do research uh, I, I actually have never done that kind of talk before it's very interesting and it really comes you know research is hard right you guys know that uh, research is difficult it's hard work um, the oftentimes your research project doesn't pan out which certainly I've done that over <laughs> and over and over <laughs> again where your project yes. doesn't work mm-hmm. um, but you know I had a I had a life-changing experience in Somalia in, in uh, 1993 and um, a, a soldier died that I was operating on that um, had no injury Uh, to his head, chest, upper abdomen, um, and kind of pelvis. And it kind of knocked us back a little bit. And uh, we came home and thought about it. Said, okay, well, if we had to do this over again, what would we do different? And what do I need to do different? What do we, what new capability do we need? And it really came down to improved hemorrhage control. And you say, okay, well, let's step back and look at how we do hemorrhage control today. And uh, much like we were talking about earlier, we do it uh, with compression. How do we? You, know, you put pressure with your hand. Well, what do you put in your hand? You put a gauze dressing. Okay. Well, let's go read about gauze dressings. Well, gauze dressings have been around for 5,000 years, unchanged at that point. Wow. And you think, you know, we got guys on the moon, we got cell phone, we have all this stuff, and yet we're still using five thousand year old dressings to stop bleeding, which is the leading potentially preventable cause of death in the leading cause of life years lost in the United States and around the world. Wow. Pretty stupid once you say that. Yeah. Yep. So we made a new dressing. Now that took a while, right? We said let's launch a program to make a new hemostatic dressings. Sure. Um along comes two thousand three, we're now in another war. And um very early in that war, the Army pushed new hemostatic dressings to take the place of gauze dressings. And so now on the battlefield, and has been for the last decade, uh, you'll still find gauze, but it's a second-line choice, and now you find new hemostatic dressings. And it it came from that experience, with a large group of people. Uh, To me, that's a fundamental change, and, and I really credit the military for taking that initiative, funding those initiatives, and then putting that dressing in the hands of every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine special operator that's on the battlefield. And that has then, of course, spread into the civilian world, which is what happens with every war. Every war uh, drives change, uh, not only the battlefield, but in the civilian community.
0: It's a great success story.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. So uh, along those lines, we know you've also worked to standardize soldier care as new nurses and doctors are rotated into a, a war zone and I think the gauze example talks about maybe standardizing um, technologies that can help improve. But could you talk to our audience about the importance of standards and how this can help standardize care for our servicemen and women?
2: Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's people focus a lot on devices and technology, and we all like the latest shiny, brighty, bright thing. Um, although my phone is three years old, you know, you could ask you how old your phone is. (laughs) About the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, But really it comes down to training, right? So uh, you have to, people have to be trained in how to use not only the new shiny devices, but also how to use their mind and think through um, what is the best way to take care of this patient in front of them, especially in a circumstance where they may be seeing it for the first time. And so we've spent a lot of time with training. There's the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee, TC3, which is uh, started by Captain Frank Butler and has continued on under his leadership uh, over the last over 20 years now. And TC3, in in essence, says the way we take care of civilian trauma patients pre-hospital is not the way you take care of them on the battlefield. And again, examples from Somalia, there were um, soldiers that were taking care of casualties on the battlefield the way they were trained to do in the civilian world, which get on your hands and knees, start two large four IVs, put folks in C collars and backboards, but they were doing that in the middle of a firefight. Why were they doing that in the middle of a firefight? Well, because they were trained to do that. Mm-hmm. And you go back to muscle memory right, mm-hmm. when you get in these situations. And so we said, well, maybe you should drag that guy behind a terrain feature and put a tourniquet on and not worry about a C collar and not give crystalloid with two large bore IVs. So it's really changed that paradigm of care under yeah. under his leadership. And that has now become um As TC three is the standard of care mm-hmm. uh, for combat casualties in just about every Western country, and frankly, in some non-Western countries as well mm-hmm. around yeah. the world.
1: And then, working off that, can you think of, of benefits how this could translate for caring uh, in an emergency department trauma care in for the civilian population?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question. So uh, one of the things we talk about is scale, right? So um, about 8,000 um, deaths have occurred since 2001 in the war uh, that's still ongoing and just changed focus a little bit. And during that time, over 2 million uh, U.S. civilians have died from injury during that same period wow. of time. And it's something people really don't understand. About 150,000 uh, U.S. citizens die from injury every year, 150,000. You know, Think about the size of the city you live in you know that's this, your city going away one city that size every year in the united states and so it's a real national uh, problem um and and fairly unrecognized except for the folks who work in the field these concepts that we apply on the battlefield that have been shown with pretty good data to decrease death from injury and improve survival uh, I think are completely applicable in the civilian world. In fact, in our center, we've applied those concepts—not just the dressings, but tourniquets and resuscitation—all of them all together in what we call bundles of care—and we've decreased death in our center uh, over the last decade by 25 uh, percent with injury. Wow. That's pretty impressive. It is. And um, and then and you know and improved outcome of those patients. So. Is it applicable? Yes. Are the wounding agents different? There are, you know, you don't have IEDs going off every day and, uh, and uh, bombs and that kind of thing in the civilian world. But if you are on your way home and get in a car wreck um, and your seat belts on and you tear your middle hepatic vein in your liver, well, you're gonna bleed pretty bad. And that's, you're gonna bleed just like as if you get a fragment from an IED on the battlefield going wow. through your middle hepatic vein. And so your physiological response is going to be the same. You're going to bleed the same. And then the interventions are going to be the same. Yeah. Right? And, I, and I say that having spent 23 years in the Army and now 10 years as a civilian, those interventions are similar. There are some differences, frankly. You know, the civilian patients are older. There's a lot more falls, a lot more comorbidities. You don't have a lot of patients on anticoagulants floating around the battlefield, thank goodness, like <laughs> in the civilian world. Um, but, but, you know, By and large, the physiologic response of a civilian person is the same as a military person because their biology is the same. They just wear different clothes. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have different wounding agents, and the treatments are the same as well.
0: That's great. And we've sort of been talking about taking research and how it progresses, you know, the medical field, whether it be for military or for civilians. Um, And we know that one of those ways is that you're a big advocate for conducting clinical trials. Mm Um, so, could you speak a little bit about how important clinical trials are, how they can be conducted to improve both combat casualty care and civilian casualty care?
2: Yeah, it's so, it's, it's interesting, you know, the philosophical underpinnings of science I think are actually pretty interesting, and, and maybe it's an old guy, gray-haired comet or something, you know. Uh, <laughs> but at some point, you've got to move the studies out of the lab and into people. Yeah. They just yes. have to happen. Yep. And there's risk involved with that. And yes. people are scared of that. And, um, and so you get into this, and, and I say this having run a large research lab, you know, with a very uh, multidisciplinary group of people, basic scientists and clinicians. You get into this thing, and, and I was part of it, I understand it, where you wanna do another study and another study and another study in the preclinical world and uh, to prove you know that it's gonna work before you put it in people. Frankly, at some point, you gotta put it in people. I, I do think that we as a community uh, of scientists spend probably more time in the preclinical world than we should. The best model that we have are the humans. They're all around us um, and I think that uh, now they need to be not ethically and safe and I'm not advocating anything no. that's not ethical sure. and safe but there is a little bit of um, I think, delay in some treatments that, that could go into people sooner and yeah. find out if they work or not. And I, I think a lot of them will. Um, we have to make sure we're not going to hurt people, but I think we have a lot of opportunity to help people. The other thing is that there's new ways, new statistical designs and new statistical analytic methods that are coming down versus our standard uh, you know, uh, control group uh, study designs we've done in the past that I think are going to be very interesting. And a lot of that led by the work in cancer we need to apply to some of the other areas. And
1: another area that we talked about um, earlier was developing human organoids, um, or sort of this bio on a chip technology. Mm -hmm. If we're then um, using that as a platform technology to do the risk assessments, make sure there's no cardiac tox, neurotox, liver tox, um, that could be sort of a surrogate model that we then um, use and, and get some of that Clinical data in human patients first before mm-hmm. them progressing. Um, I also wanted to follow up on your comment about being an entrepreneur, and we, we know that you you started an IT health company. Could you uh, comment a little bit about uh, what started that, and and how did you go from <laughs> being you know soldier, surgeon, scientist, and now oh it, it's time to also add your. Uh, entrepreneurial
0: hat
2: (laughs) well i I think they're somewhat similar actually so uh you know as a clinician i've worked with electronic medical records for the last 25 years and and you'll you rarely will find a active clinician who likes working with electronic medical records right and um much like we said you know bleeding is a problem let's go work on bleeding and fix it and said, well, electronic medical records, it's like a sharp stick in your eye every day uh, on every patient, right? So if you see 30 patients a day, it's 30 sharp sticks in the eye. Uh, And I think that they impeded uh, quality care, actually. And there's studies now coming out to show that, that the EMR development has impeded the ability to do uh, quality care because it essentially hides information from the whole clinical team, not just the doctors with the nurses and everybody else and mm. takes you away from touching, feeling, and seeing the patient. Okay, so that's, you've identified a problem, right? And, and what do we do as scientists? Well, you go f- work on the problem yeah. and um, the-, uh, you, so develop the and you develop the solution. You develop the solution and then you publish, you know, you pub- present and publish the data, right? Well, uh, the EMR world is this big business world okay well to solve that problem you need to start a business right and uh, and work on that and so that's what we did we identified a problem that uh, most clinicians see there's a body of data out there that suggests that it imped it hides data my military experience uh, working with dashboards dashboards of care and they were set up for uh, you know, a very different reason for the dashboard. Mm, but, um, but the same concept is there. You don't put all the data, you just put the actionable information. Yep. You make that data transparent to all levels mm-hmm. of the system, whatever system you're working yep. with. Um, you know, and then you allow people to do the right thing. You give them the information, and you allow them to do the right thing. And in the medical world, people come to work to take care of good care of patients today. Mm-hmm. The example I use is if you're rounding on 23 patients in the ICU and each patient generates a thousand pieces of data a day, it's 23,000 pieces of data. And what do you want your doctor to know? Everything. Well, it's impossible to know 23,000 pieces of data. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible. Yeah. So you create a dash, individual patient dashboard and you put that information up, color-coded red, yellow, green. Everybody knows what that is. Green is good, red, bad, yellow, beware. Mm-hmm. And let the nurses and the doctors and the RT techs and the patients and the patient's families all see the information. Wow. Right? It's Mm -hmm. very powerful. Mm -hmm. And then you just let people do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And they will. And Mm -hmm. patients get better.
0: But I think you had a good point earlier. Whenever you marry good technology and good research with good business practices, Mm -hmm. I think everybody gets, you know, the goal is achieved.
2: Everybody wins, right? Everybody wins. So if you improve quality of care, Mm -hmm patients do better and that's the goal of taking care of patients and you also save money for the system right quality care saves money for the system Uh, so you know everybody's happy sounds good yeah
0: well sort of in closing uh, we just wanted to ask if you have any advice for any young surgeon scientists who maybe want to do the same thing that you did and make a difference in some traumatic casualty
2: care. Yeah, so I'll go back to this talk I gave last week, right, and which was fascinating for me to put together this kind of talk, and what I, you know, you got to find something that motivates you, right, when we bring young people into our group, we will often assign them a, a, a thing to work on, and it, you got to get going, right, so there's, you have to get going, you have to learn the process of research, and, and for a certain, it's like doing hernias, when you do a hernia repair, it sounds really simple, the layperson, it's actually pretty complicated, the anatomy is uncertain the first 10 hernias you do with a faculty person you're not really sure what you're doing you're just doing what you're told but by the time you get to the 10th one you kind of get a feeling for this the process of fixing a hernia research is much the same way right you remember the first grant you wrote the first paper you wrote uh it's not easy you need lots of help it gets easier the more you do what are you gonna f- what are you gonna work on for the rest of your life and then of course it's not the rest of your life because your life is going to change a bunch uh, but for the next 10 years, mm-hmm. you have to find something you're passionate about. And mm-hmm. what, what I, I think the passion will find you, mm-hmm. actually. You have to be open to it, but the passion will find you. And then you go work on it, whether it's bleeding or resuscitation or the EMR. It'll find you. And then you go work on it to fix it.
0: <laughs> I think that's really good advice for anybody, not just young people. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's all for this episode. Be sure to listen next time for the latest in regenerative medicine.
0: This podcast is a production of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, part of the Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. For more information, visit our website at www.wfirm.org or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at WFIRM News.